Healing your relationship with food energizes you to step into your most joyful life. Whether you're attracting an abundance of clients or playing with your baby on the floor, we believe that healing your relationship with food is the foundation on which you build your most joyful life. If food is taking up your time and mental space, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Joyful Podcast. Welcome back to the Joyful Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Monica. Monica is a social worker. She got her degree in social work from the University of Toronto. And over the years, she's been providing care to people with trauma, substance abuse, chronic health conditions, including HIV, eating disorders, disordered eating, and a number of other mental health concerns. Monica has a private practice where she works with adults and adolescents, providing therapy for disordered eating, eating disorders, and a variety of mental health concerns. And Monica has also recently completed her training to become a certified intuitive eating counselor. That's where Monica and I met. In today's episode, we discuss the eating disorder spectrum, how to know if you need support. We talk a little bit more about the road to recovery and eating disorders, and eating disorder recovery from the lens of a professional. We talk about a lot of myths and misconceptions about eating disorders, disordered eating and intuitive eating. And Monica's got some really great practical bits and pieces for you to take home and apply in your everyday life. So please welcome Monica to the podcast. Thank you so much, Monica, for being here today. It's a joy to have you. And it's so funny. um, I'll tell our listeners that Monica and I met in our intuitive eating certification training, and then we just happened to live very close together and have similar, um, you know, approaches and and that sort of thing with clients. So thanks for being here, Monica. Thanks for having me. No problem. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about you? Sure. Uh, So I'm currently based in Victoria, BC. I've worked in eating disorders since 2017. And I've been fully working for myself now since fall of 2021. Uh, And so most of my practice is based around disordered eating, eating disorders, intuitive eating, uh, and then sort of all of the concurrent mental health concerns that come along with that. Uh, that's pronouns are she her (laughs) perfect thank you for sharing that can you tell us a little bit about how you got you said you work mostly with disordered eating and kind of the mental health kind of things that accompany this as well can you tell us a little bit more about how you ended up working in this kind of area what interested you in this yeah I would say kind of going way back I've always been interested in health and public health I was a lifeguard, a first aid instructor. I worked for an HIV nonprofit for a while. And so I was very much immersed in sort of health, mental health, social justice issues, uh, systemic barriers to health, social determinants of health, all of those things, which led me to sort of a crossroads of deciding where do I want to go from here? Um, Which is where I decided to do my master's in social work in Toronto. Mm. And from there, I took all of my HIV work 
and mental health and trauma and addictions and really focused on mental health as the specialization for my degree because uh, I think social work is a, kind of a confusing degree for a lot of people. They sometimes think you say social worker and somebody thinks child protection or you say yes. social worker and somebody thinks hospital and also under that umbrella is psychotherapy or psychotherapists. So there are so many different types of social workers. Similarly, I think to nursing, where you think of a nurse, a nurse could be an educator, could be in hospital, could be in community, could be in a high school, could be in so many different places. Social work has very much that very broad catch all. Um, so I'm a psychotherapist and that's my, that's my training. I really focused on my degree more on substance use and trauma. And then I guess fast forward a little bit, did some acute inpatient psychiatric work, youth work, high risk youth work, and a job popped up in Victoria. And I thought, why not? Seems like a great city. And it was in the eating disorders program. Up to that point, I'd been exposed to and working with a lot of clients with disordered eating or eating disorders because it's really prevalent in trauma and addictions. Mm -hmm. A lot of people with trauma histories or addictions issues also struggle with some degree of disordered eating or eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And so it was definitely an area of that I didn't have a specialization in, uh, but that I'd worked with and a lot of clients who'd struggled in that area. And so it was a good clinical opportunity to get really in-depth intensive training and work in eating disorders. From there, I really fell in love with working with eating disorders and eating disorder clients, the medical complexity, the mental health issues, and sort of the mix of all of these different systems issues within eating disorders. And so that's kind of how I ended up <laughs> an eating disorder therapist. Wow. Yeah. You're so right. What you were saying too about, you know, people think social workers are, you know, just child protection services. Cause I thought that too, honestly, for like the longest time. Um, and it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't till like, honestly, pretty recently, like in the last few years that I realized like, oh my gosh, like this is not true. Cause that's, that was my exposure to social workers was yeah. those kind of, and like you said, in hospital. Um, so for people to know that like, a social worker is also a therapist that it's not just you know people <laughs> in hospitals or, or for children or families or things like that that you know you do clinical um, psychotherapy as well yeah. like you are are a therapist so um i think that's a really great distinction for our listeners to to know and to recognize that um that social workers work in this this space as well too um so i'm curious because you mentioned you were working like more, more in a in a clinical role, it sounds like in eating disorders. So what, how did you end up in your own business, seeing your own clients and eating disorders? Yeah, I think like many people we've seen in the healthcare industry, COVID took systems issues that were challenging mm -hmm. and made them in many ways, more acute, more complex, more complicated, mm -hmm. a lot of to turnover in staffing, like across, mm -hmm. across the healthcare continuum. And I got to a place with, in the program I was a part of and within the systems issues, feeling like I kind of hit 
my own personal uh, limit around burnout and um, really feeling the impact and the weight of sort of the system inequalities and the system failures and the barriers that clients were hitting that mm-hmm. I couldn't move, they can't move. Uh, and I started pivoting increasingly into uh, private practice and working for myself so that I can be a more, a better advocate for systems issues mm. and better pace meeting clients where they're at uh, with their own change process in a less sort of pressured, rushed way that sometimes when you're working within a treatment program has a lot more uh structures and rules and especially in eating disorders and I think often in substance use there's this phrase called phased treatment where somebody might enter a treatment program for a period of time take a step out for a while go back to treatment again for another period of time that can be quite hard and also can be effective for me I like the flexibility of being able to work with clients kind of through those different stages of wanting to change, not really wanting to change, um, and everything in between. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like, you know, your own kind of burnout and kind of issues with the system and the way that you wanted to, you know, serve and and help people. And then also, um, on the other end, like helping clients too, that like in a more effective way, right? Because I, I see what you're saying about, you know, there's barriers to like getting the people the help that they need or like, oh, they're good enough or something and then they can get out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. It's it's really cool that you were able to kind of pivot and switch and, and create your own private practice. Um, and from what I see, you're you're quite busy. So if anyone's listening and wants to work with Monica, you got to get on her wait list. Yes. <laughs> um, she's a hot commodity. <laughs> so from from there, I'm curious, what is something that you see in clients or like prospective clients that like they need to, you know, see in themselves in order to like seek support or be ready to kind of like make these changes maybe in the inpatient and, and also or the, the clinical kind of setting and also maybe in your own private practice? Have you noticed any things? Yeah, I think we know that intuitive eating, disordered eating, and eating disorders all exist on a continuum. Mm -hmm. So there's varying levels of severity with that. Mm -hmm. And because we're human and we like to look around and we like to compare that an apple isn't like an orange, we do a lot of comparison thinking and observing naturally. And so when we get into the realm of disordered eating, intuitive eating, eating disorders, there's a lot of comparison and stereotypes around what is kind of sick enough, Mm. what's bad enough, Mm -hmm. what's a valid enough problem to be having. And I would love it (laughs) if more people were wherever they're at on that continuum could say, this is a stuck point for me. I'm struggling Mm. with this. Yeah. And I want some support. So that I, we could as just, you know, a general community of intuitive eating counselors and uh, registered dietitians and registered counselors, psychotherapists could all 
really meet more people along that continuum and for people to trust that we're not judging whether Mm -hmm. or not someone's struggles with food or body eating shape health whether they're bad enough uh and that everyone deserves access to health health care and support yeah you're so 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 right like there is this really big idea of like well i don't have like an eating disorder or i don't you know participate in these specific behaviors so therefore i don't need help or therefore i don't have an eating disorder or therefore um you know these kinds of things and a lot of the times i see too a lot of disordered eating behaviors are really normalized by mm. our health wellness like fitness kind of culture and it's becoming increasingly more so um so a lot of people i think also maybe don't even realize that they have yeah. a problem and that they don't even know that there is another <laughs> alternative that there is an option that it doesn't have to be this way and what you're saying too about like being a, a community of people who help people with this it's like it's also so much easier to change these kinds of behaviors and feelings and patterns when they're not a full-blown eating disorder (laughs) like when it's not been going on for your whole entire life yeah Um, so what might you say to somebody who kind of feels like this like i don't really know if i have uh something going on i'm not sure like what would you say to them are like some maybe signs or maybe um yeah, just some things that you would suggest to them if they're listening to this and they're like, well, I don't know, like, maybe that's me. Maybe I fall into this category of I don't know. If thinking about food, weight, your body is disrupting your quality of life, you deserve support in this area. Yeah. Essentially. Absolutely. I was going to say something similar, like if you think something's not quite right (laughs) yeah you probably yeah talk to someone and talk to someone who knows also Mm -hmm. about this area um talk to somebody who has worked with you know clients on intuitive eating or with eating disorders or um health at every size because they can help you also determine what is best for you too um so yes you're absolutely right if if it's weighing on your mind at all yeah all like even a tiny bit at all go talk to somebody please if you're listening to this probably you have some interest in normalizing your relationship to food or eating that's a great idea yes (laughs) you're you're absolutely right yeah yeah unless you're just super fans of me or monica (laughs) you're also welcome here (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely yeah thank you so much for sharing that i think the other beautiful thing about intuitive eating and certified intuitive eating counselors is that we are a mixed community of registered dietitians and counselors. And so one of the beautiful advantages of that is that if seeing a counselor sounds a little bit more intimidating than seeing a dietitian, start with a dietitian. If seeing a counselor feels a little bit more accessible or more comfortable than starting with a dietitian, start with a counselor. And that you can find certified intuitive eating counselors in in both professional realms. Yeah, and even more professional realms as well too. Um, and you're so you're so right about that. Like, also, I know like you specifically work with eating disorders, but 
um, as a dietitian too, like if you're just even curious what intuitive eating is, if you're just like, I feel like the, the thing that I hear most is like, I feel like I want to eat healthy, but I don't know how. Or if I, you know, if I just allow myself to eat what I want to eat, I'm just afraid that I'm just going to eat junk mm. food all the time. Um, or I know the healthy things that I'm supposed to eat, but I just find myself drawn to these other things where I always eat till I'm over full. Like you don't have mm. to have, you know, eating disorder thoughts or behaviors or fears like that. Like I would argue like 99% of our population could benefit from intuitive eating skills, yes. whether or not you're on the disordered eating spectrum. So thank yes. you so much for, for mentioning that. Like it's, it's something that it's a beautiful skill that it's, it's not something that um, you have to have a, a super serious problem in order to benefit from it. And in fact, the clients that, um, that have come, that I've worked with that, like, were like, I just want to eat, you know, healthier. I just want to feel better about my food choices. I just want to like, you know, enjoy food more. Those are the clients that I see, like have a super quick, like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like quick turnaround and like, yeah. awesome, cool on your way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can kind of grab and go a little bit yeah. better. I, I would also say the other big thing and I probably say this multiple times a week in sessions with clients around this idea of sick enough and what does an eating disorder look like mm -hmm. is that very very few people look like a Netflix documentary on eating disorder yes so true um, the research says less than six percent of people with eating disorders are medically underweight if we were going to go into the problematic BMI measurement of that. And what I like to do with that statistic is actually flip it and say 94% of people mm. with eating disorders, yeah, according to the BMI, are at normal, overweight, or obese on the BMI scale. 94% of people with eating disorders. So, so what do most people with eating disorders look like? They don't look like that very particular small percentage that you will see in the media of a um, very thin underweight probably young white girl yeah absolutely thank you so much for sharing that and so this i'm curious this six percent is that just the bmi or is that other characteristics like you're saying ethnicity race like all that kind of stuff too yeah this the study that they did on this a few years ago was using bmi as a mm -hmm. as a way to look at okay, what percentage of people with eating disorders fall into these different kind of BMI categories? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 But you're absolutely right too about, you know, like it's not just, you know, skin and bones, white girls that are 16 years old. Like most of the people with eating disorders that I see do not fall into this category. Yeah. I don't think I've had a single one yet. So you're absolutely no. right about the 6%. Like it, it is a really small minuscule yeah. population and with it being june and with it being pride month also yeah you know, we know that the queer community gender diverse folks absolutely uh, are at a higher risk for eating disorders than the general population i think that also coming back to this like qual like self-qualifying yourself for help like people that don't fit this kind of stereotypical um description of an eating disorders might not think that they need support or might not recognize that this is what they're going through. And they might just think like, oh, there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. um, and not and there's really a, there's a lot of on. medical stigma. Absolutely. As well. Yeah. So 
that is a huge barrier to people feeling like they're sick enough or deserving enough for accessing care. Yeah. And while there are many healthcare professionals that have amazing areas of specialization, I think it's always important to remember that a GP or a nurse practitioner might be doing keto while oh my gosh your, <laughs> I don't know your leg injury or something and so while yes these specialized you know medical professionals and medical advice is important when it comes to food eating weight they're not particularly trained in this area they maybe had a one day of med school where maybe a dietitian came and <laughs> talked to them or an eating disorder counselor, you know, gave a brief 30 minute blurb to them on eating disorders. It's not an area that they understand very well. And they are a human being existing in this mm-hmm. world that has a, you know, $500 billion diet and wellness industry that may have their own levels of disordered eating, body image, dissatisfaction and distress. And so sometimes when they're doing a quick BMI calculation that they've been trained to do and they're jumping to recommendations around intentional weight loss. That's not medical advice. That's coming from the person who lives in diet culture that may be pursuing disordered eating and compulsive exercise and problematic habits around food and weight. I'm so glad you brought that up, Monica. I cannot tell you how many clients have come to me being like, oh, my doctor just told me to do keto or my doctor just told me like, I just need to eat gluten-free so that I can lose weight um, for, oh, my doctor told me I need to do this to improve my arthritis or that I need to lose weight in order to literally anything. Like I had a client, I think say that their doctor told them to lose weight for their nosebleeds nosebleeds like not even like yeah it's it's crazy i can also tell you a story oh my gosh about i went on a hike once i have a friend who is in who's a doctor i want to hike hike with her and some some of her doctor friends and once they found out i was a dietitian (laughs) it was hilarious one of them was asking me um was telling me actually not even asking me it was almost like um it was really strange they were like telling me about how they had heard about this i can't even remember what it was called like primal diet on joe rogan joe rogan monica they're like i heard on it on joe rogan so i told my patient maybe they should go listen to joe rogan's podcast i was like you are a doctor you Mm -hmm. are getting your information from Joe Rogan, like, I don't really yeah. know. I don't listen to his stuff. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't, yeah. but I don't really know him. I don't know much about him, but like, if you're a medical, this is what I want people to see is like, they're, like you said, they're not immune to this too, right? They listen to oh. Joe Rogan. They follow the Fitzbo on Instagram. They have been living in this diet culture filled world just as long as you have. They're not immune to this too. Um, so unless they have done specific work and training in health at every size and in intuitive eating and educating themselves on what is going on, you also want to, you know, take it with, take, take it, you know, with a grain of salt, like be critical about it. Um, something that I heard 
a while ago too, is that, you know, doctors are medical professionals. They're excellent. You know, they're, they know a lot about the body. They can perform surgery. They can do all these things. They can prescribe medications. Amazing. But they're not ex like wellness experts, right? They have not oh. been trained in all of these other areas. So, um, it's, they, they don't have a dietetics degree like don't. you do. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have a, a, um, you know, training in psychotherapy, right? No. They don't have, they also don't have the time. Like I also have a lot of sympathy because they get 10 minutes to mm-hmm. talk with someone. We get an hour, which yeah. is amazing. I could never do an appointment in 10 minutes. Can you imagine? No. Like, my first intake, I just ask questions for an hour. (laughs) We don't even, you know, get into like half of the stuff, but like, and that's even hard, you know, to get through all of that in an hour. So um, I also just recognizing for the listeners too, that like, do your own due diligence and work with a a team that supports you and not just, you know, one health professional. Yeah. One of my favorite things to encourage clients to do is if let's say cholesterol is high and the doctor says to lose weight. I highly recommend the client ask, what would you recommend somebody in a small body do for high cholesterol Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or diabetes or blood pressure or nosebleed? Yeah. (laughs) uh, Anything where if someone was in a really small body, what would you recommend for this condition? Yeah. Because medically they have to tell someone something and there are appropriate medical interventions that have nothing to do with weight. And there are so many amazing allied healthcare professionals out there uh, that can support through this as well. One of the things I did as I was transitioning away from agency work to working for myself was build a website And one of the things that was really important to me in that was creating a resources page Mm. where it could just be a landing page, whether or not someone could access private appointments in healthcare or is on a wait list or waiting for program, public programming, wherever they're at to have different resources that are either free like YouTube or articles that are online or books that are fairly low cost. One of the things I have on there is a doctor wrote uh, quite a lengthy article that's cited and referenced around why they don't prescribe weight loss to any of their patients anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's a great piece that can be sent to your GP or your nurse practitioner Mm. if they are doing that, because it's written by a GP. So it's, it's doctor to doctor. Don't do this. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really great resource. And um, I'll link the your resources page sure. in the show notes as well. So if people want, if people are experiencing this, you can take yeah. this note, send it to your doctor. Um, or if you work as a health professional, um, you know, share it with your coworkers, share it with, um, read it yourself. If you're a healthcare professional and you're listening to this, um, that's great. I'm going to read it. I haven't, I haven't read that, but I'm curious to, I'm curious to read it. That sounds cool. Yeah. Great. Okay. I want to kind of uh, go into maybe a little bit about, you know, healing one's relationship Mm. with food, exercise, body, whatever it is. So I'm curious if there has been any, maybe one thing or maybe few things that, that has been maybe most helpful for your 
clients in working on their relationship with food and body and exercise? Yeah, I think related to what we were talking about around weight-based discrimination in medical care, education around fat phobia and thin privilege is a really important aspect of this work, yeah. regardless of the body size that you live in. Mm-hmm. It is really common that because the diet and weight loss industry has this, you know, $570 billion megaphone selling products for every single aspect of your body and appearance, the actual statistics, research, information can't match that, that megaphone. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, science and research doesn't have 570 odd billion dollars annually around it Mm -hmm. so really the education around fat phobia weight-based discrimination and thin privilege is really important in shifting away from the idea that we are the problem or our bodies are the problem or that we're doing something wrong and that it's an individual issue because it's not an individual issue Mm -hmm. it's a systemic societal issue and I think what's really exciting is that in 2023, we are naming it more. I see more of it. Uh, We're shifting away from it. If you watch a movie made in 2002 versus 2023, is there fat phobia in both? Yes. However, the amount of it in 2002 is much more substantial than it is today. So we can see this reduction in the amount of weight-based discrimination, the amount of fat phobia, the amount of, you know, anyone other than the thin white girl being the sidekick, the best friend, the uh, person that's the funny one. Um, We're seeing more body diversity. It's slow. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. not enough, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we're seeing more race, gender, body diversity in our mass media now, which is great. Um, And I think really continuing to understand that, these are very real systemic issues. They're yeah. not an individual problem. Yeah. And yeah. it's not it's not okay. The accessibility issues to travel on an airplane or go and get a massage, those those are very real issues that some people have to face like am I going to fit on the massage table? Do I, am I going to need to figure out getting two seats on a plane? which you can actually do with Air Canada. You can get a medical note and they will give you two seats. But these are these are very real ways in which thin privilege makes life easier for some bodies and makes it more difficult to move around and exist in the world that we live in for other bodies. Some people don't have to think about what's the seating going to be like at the restaurant? Mm-hmm. Are there going to be arms on the chair? Is the booth going to be like really squishy and narrow? And am I going to be able to fit in the booth? Can I even go there? Mm -hmm. Um, some people don't have to think about those things and that's, that's thin privilege at its core. That doesn't mean people in small bodies don't struggle with body image. Mm -hmm. It means that these are privileges afforded to folks in smaller bodies and they're very real and they do greatly impact the experiences people in larger bodies have and, and the desire to be in a smaller body because Mm -hmm. of the privileges that Mm -hmm. being thin affords. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, I love what you said there very briefly, but there's a big difference between, um, you know, body image, body dysmorphia, you know, being unhappy in your own body, and then the systemic, you know, fat phobia, thin privilege, like those are two completely separate issues. Just because you're thin and you have, you know, body image issues and you don't like your body, that's valid. Absolutely. That's valid. Mm -hmm. But you don't, what you're saying and where what I want the listener to distinguish is like, but you don't worry about going to, you know, Aritzia and them not having your size, going to be able to like, you know, sit on public transit. You don't worry about, you know, all these kinds, all these kinds of things that people that exist in small bodies, um, experience. And what's so interesting, and this is what we learned, you know, in our intuitive eating training is that, you know, fat phobia and weight bias alone increases their um, risks of developing, you know, chronic health problems, mortality, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times in, in our, our modern world, it's like, oh, it's because of their size. And it's not like physically because of their size. It's, it is because of their size, because of the way the society, our society treats them in the same way that, you know, racism diminishes people's health, quality of life, access to health services, all these kinds of things. So it's not about the actual, you know, color of one's skin or about the size of one's body. It's about the way that those people are treated in, in our, in our world. Yeah. Thank you for, for bringing that up and for sharing that. Yeah. I would say the other really, I guess, core pieces that I work on quite intensively with clients is around Mm -hmm. self-compassion. What's really cool, especially in the field of eating disorders is openness to the concept of self-compassion actually improves recovery outcomes for eating disorders. Mm. That's not openness. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Of working on self-compassion. So thinking about self-kindness, being aware of how we're talking to ourselves. Are we calling ourselves names like lazy Uh or dramatic or those kinds of things? Uh Um, Or are we speaking to ourselves kindly? Kind of going back to that, you know, kindergarten, you know, like (laughs) don't say anything (laughs) that you wouldn't want to say to someone else, like all of that kind of we can, if we are not going to say it to someone else, maybe it's not the nicest thing to say to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. I didn't even know that about the openness to Mm -hmm. self-compassion. That's massive um, because that is something, you know, I think whether or not you have, you know, an eating disorder or disordered eating, or if any of this resonates with you, we all can absolutely work on openness to self-compassion if not self-compassion in itself um because you're absolutely right what i've seen my clients too is the way that we speak to ourselves we would never ever speak to that someone to someone else i often you know throw it back at them i'm like would you say that to me (laughs) and they're like oh god no never right (laughs) i was like okay well what would you say to me then (laughs) um just practicing so there's a quick tip if you're listening practice like you know, thinking of like, what would I say to my friend? What would I, you know, if my friend was struggling with this, what would I say to her? Or if you have kids, what would I say to my daughter? What would I say to my kid? Yeah. What would I say to somebody I love and care about? I mean, and and to go one step further, would you say that that to even someone you didn't like? Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, even sort of not. your least liked colleague, person at school, friend, family friend. Would you say that to even someone you really didn't like? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for throwing that in there. Cause that's <laughs> a real great, uh, like, Oh, <laughs> moment. Like, you know, even the people that we don't like, we, we speak more highly of than we speak of ourselves. Yeah. With more kindness for sure. <laughs> Anything else that you're like really wanting to like dig into or like that you wanted to share now that we like got the ball rolling? <laughs> I, I guess I, I come back to often being working on healing your relationship with food, working on really healing your relationship with movement, with yourself in general. It's really important to build community around that. Mm. Um, I know I've seen that in the group work I've done. I know you've seen that in the groups that you run. Mm-hmm. I've also experienced that you know, professionally being surrounded by other intuitive eating counselors, anti-diet, eating disorder professionals. And this is, you know, social media has its ups and downs and pros and cons. This is one of the really cool parts of social media is that if I open my Instagram, I will probably see almost nothing diet related. I report a lot of it as disordered eating. Nice. I also follow intentionally follow people that are sharing sound bites of really important reminders and information around like what is actually true when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to movement, when it comes to self-compassion and kindness and disordered eating and what's disordered and what isn't and all of that stuff that gets really confusing for a lot of people. There are so many great educators online. And so if you don't have that community already in in real life, it's a really beautiful thing to increase body diversity on your, on your feed. Because mm-hmm. this is, we're also talking about our, it's called like our visual diet. What are the images that we're exposed to mm-hmm. and looking at on a daily mm-hmm. basis? And so do you have diversity in TikTok and in Mm -hmm. Instagram, because that also has a huge impact on navigating our own body distress and healing our own relationship with food, body image, movement, all of those different pieces to have other people that are also actively working through the stuck points, the Mm -hmm. distress points Mm -hmm. uh, that feel similar ways. And so that really it, the powerful thing, and and probably you've also seen this in your groups too, is it's an amazing thing to not feel alone in this Mm because you're, nobody is alone in this. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be a really scary, isolating, lonely place when we, when we do feel alone in this. A lot of times when I do intakes with folks, I'm the first person they've talked to about eating or body Mm -hmm. image. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or movement. And that's a really lonely, isolated place. And and eating disorders and eating disorder behaviors are isolating. Yeah. And so breaking that down, again, regardless of where you are on that continuum, but breaking that down and finding community 
whether that's in groups. And I know a lot of people don't like the idea of groups and group treatment. It's a really beautiful place mm. to meet people it really is. and to build more of a community of like-minded people that are doing something that in so many ways is countercultural. We're fighting a mm. 500, 600 billion dollar diet and wellness industry mm-hmm. that makes a ton of money every year mm-hmm. with s- selling these messages and selling these products. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to build up your social media feeds and meet people and connect with people and stay connected to others who are also in this health at every size, anti-diet, body acceptance, body neutrality intuitive movement, intuitive eating space. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And you're absolutely right. Um, The first piece that you said, you know, finding community and group and you said you're so right. Like, I feel like people are like, oh, like this feels so personal, right? This feels so vulnerable. That is the exact reason why you want to lean into groups, right? Because that is how you connect with others by being vulnerable, by sharing the things that are going on with you, the real things, right? And and being met with kindness and compassion and be like, yeah, me too, right? I, I hear you. And that's the beauty of that I've seen in groups, right? Is like, oh my gosh, what you just said is like exactly what I've been going through too. Or what, like I, I've had client like in my group, the clients in my group thing say that, right? Be like, mm-hmm. wow, that sounds like exactly what's going on for me. So yeah. On, if, if that's what you're feeling, if you're feeling afraid of like, I don't want to be judged, I don't want to be vulnerable, like, that's exactly why you might want to lean into these groups, because it's going to help you so much more than, you know, to be connected and in a community with supportive people who are on the same path as you and having the same kind of similar mm-hmm. experience as you. Um, what you also said about you know, this is not something that people really talk about. So finding community where you can talk about this is important. And you're absolutely right. Like I've had clients that came to me and be like, I don't talk about this with my counselor because I'm afraid that they'll judge me. Or I've Mm -hmm. never, I don't even tell this to my mom because I'm afraid she's going to worry about me. Um, So it's so important to have, you know, if you can access and you're in this place, like, uh, a health professional that has experience in eating disorders, intuitive eating, to have that safe space where you know you're not going to be judged, where you know they can handle it, where they know, Mm -hmm. where you know that they have the experience and the knowledge. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel like we've seen it all, right? Like there's there's nothing you can tell us that's going to surprise us um, or shock us um, that these these kinds of feelings are you don't have to handle them alone you don't have yeah. to and you can tell somebody um and you want to find the person that that you can trust and that has the experience in this you don't want to just like go shouting this to everybody no um because you want to do it in a safe way um and then lastly what you said about you know cultivating i like what you said your your visual diet is that what you said yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's so good i love that um i usually say like it's your inputs to clients, right? It's like, what are you taking in? Um, And those are things like you can't always control what people say to you, but you can control the the messages that you consume. So if you're scrolling on TikTok and feeling like you're just watching people and comparing yourself to them and beating yourself up, like that's an input, right? Is this helping you? Is this leaving you feeling better? 
um, can you curate your social media feed to, you know, have more diverse bodies to not have all these diet messages? And a lot of times I hear, I've heard from clients is like, oh, well, like it's inspiration or like, oh, I get ideas from them and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, are these inspirations and ideas actually making you feel good? Are they, mm-hmm. or are they just making you feel like I'm not doing enough and I, oh, I should be doing this, but instead I'm here scrolling and feeling bad about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really important, like you said, to curate. This is one of the first things that, that we do, that I do with clients is like curate your inputs, curate your social media, curate your visual diet, right? Like yeah. what is it that you're taking in? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you, you're right. You can't control, you walk into the lunchroom and yeah. somebody's brought in donuts and somebody is making a comment about how they can't eat that or they wish they could eat that or yeah. they don't want to eat that or they're bad for eating that. Right? Yeah. They're going into all of these places with that. And if you're working on, okay, there's no good foods or bad foods. <laughs> I, I, this is, this donut's morally neutral. I'm not good or bad for having a donut and you're working on permission around all foods fitting, you might need to walk out of that lunchroom and go vent to someone. Yeah. <laughs> or whether that's like, oh, I have an appointment with uh, Tamara in a few days, or <laughs> I'm yeah. going to talk to Monica about this, or, hey, I met somebody from group who also struggles with this, and yeah. I'm going to send them a message and be like, this is really hard. Yeah. This is really stressing me out. I'm really upset by these comments having somewhere to go so that you can get that support you can yell scream vent cry yeah yeah uh, about how frustrating it is to be inundated by this diet and wellness industry all the time yeah yeah absolutely and like like you're saying you know having that safe space and also like when you do curate your inputs it's not like a hundred percent of my information that I'm taking in is about how bad donuts are. It's like 99% of it is about, you know, body neutrality and food neutrality and, you know, self-compassion and kindness. And then, oh, when that one donut comment in the lunchroom comes up, it's like, it's maybe staggering and it's maybe like, whoa, but then you can eventually get to a place where it's like, this isn't bombarding my, my subconscious mind all the time right and it can become a lot more obvious that like this is something going on and it's not like everything that you're consuming so um you're absolutely right that it's it's so important to to be aware of like what's going on around us and and some things we can't change but absolutely some things we can yeah and taking care of yourself in that process because it is hard all right can you tell our listeners where they can find you or more about, you know, how you work with people um, and that sort of thing? Yeah, probably my website will give you a little bit more information about me. You can follow my Instagram. It's not a fancy professional Instagram. It's more uh, my different adventures out in nature and in the world. Uh, I do repost a lot of different accounts that I love uh, talking about that sort of online curating those sound bites and those accounts to follow. So that can be a good resource for that. If you do toss your name on my wait list, I highly recommend not waiting. I, when you put your name on my wait list, you'll get a whole list of counselors that I recommend dietitians that I recommend so that you can get started right away. I'd rather you get going and get some support on this stuff 
sooner than later, immediately yesterday. Uh, mm. So you can do that. And then, yeah, I think the resources page is kind of, was kind of like a, a labor of love. So there's lots of stuff there, um, including some of my own interests, like favorite rom-com books and oh, nice. some, some of my more uh, favorite more size inclusive brands they're not totally size inclusive but some of the ones that are more size inclusive uh, I have up there as well so mm. things to poke around and look at that's great yeah. yeah so I'll I'll link for the listener if you're listening to this to Monica's website and to her resources page so you can go check her out if there was one thing you wish everyone could know that you believe is true that would make the world better what might that be Essentially that you, me, everyone is doing our best every single day. And that might change from day to day, from season to season. Our capacities will fluctuate because we're humans, we're not machines. Mm -hmm. And that no matter what does or doesn't get done today, no matter how much you scroll, no matter what happens, you're doing your best. And even when we're judging ourselves that it's not enough it is enough mic drop perfect (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much monica for for being here and for sharing your experience your expertise your knowledge your energy um with us and with our listeners it's been such a joy to talk with you this hour absolutely flew by this was so fun yeah um thank yeah thank you so much for yeah and if people have questions and we want to do a part two if you want to do something that's you know really dive into eating disorders or some other uh-huh. topic, happy to hop back on in the future i love that yes yeah I hope this episode was helpful and encouraging to you. If you're curious to learn more about Monica and her work, I've linked her website in the show notes below. I've also linked the letter to the doctor in the show notes below, as well as Monica's resources page for you to take a look at. If you're curious to learn more about intuitive eating and how a dietitian might help you in that journey, you're invited to book a complimentary discovery call below so that you can save time and see if intuitive eating might be a good fit for you or find resources and the path that is best for you wherever you are at in this journey. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.